For the last 30 years, Seth Godin has been turning on the lights for millions of people. Through his books, I think we're counting like 17. He's got like five, count them, one, two, three, four, five TED Talks. He's got seminars. He's got an online learning platform called All MBA. His most recent book, This Is Marketing, was a bestseller, uh, as have, uh, I don't know, 15 or 16 other books have been bestsellers around the world. 19 total, I think, now that I'm doing my math a little bit better. And every single time I sit down with Seth, he inspires the hell out of me. And I learned something incredibly valuable. If you were on my book tour at all, maybe if you came and saw us in New York, I had the privilege of being in conversation with Seth. Um, Seth has been a mentor to me for a long time, specifically around the area of writing where he read um, the most advanced, the earliest rather copy of Creative Calling, gave me some feedback, which was super helpful into turning it into the book. And he's done the same thing for so many people. He's insanely, incredibly over the top generous. Um, not to mention his blog uh, that he's been writing for, I think, 20 years or something like that every day. Let's just say it, every day for more than a decade um, has been an endless source of inspiration and getting me to think. And for that and a million other reasons, um, it brings me great pleasure to have Seth back on the show today with his new book called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. And the concept of practice is not new. Obviously, it's something that I've been talking about for a long time. One of the things that I believe this, this concept of a process, of creative process, just doing the work creates the results. It creates all the best things. It helps us solve problems. This is the, this is the epicenter, the, um, the core of Seth's book. And I truly believe this is like an aggregate of maybe his most recent uh, 10 books, all of the best stuff, the best stuff about creating, about mindset, about mentorship, about learning, about trusting yourself. And that makes me want to share just a few of the um, specific topics that we covered in our conversation, which is about to, let me just tell you, it's going to rock your world. He speaks in like finished, finished prose that you can literally tweet. If you want to put some stuff up in your wall, just have your, uh, your notebook open or your computer open and take some notes on your phone or whatever. Cause we cover a ton of ground and it's all that's just in distilled. He is such a critical and uh, extraordinary thinker that this is going to be a doozy of a show. We talk about uh, how all criticism is not the same. Most of it's not valid. We talk about the concept of skill and talent being different. We talk about, attitude, mental mindset, passion. We talk about trusting yourself and learning to do that over time because this is such an important piece, not just for being a creator, but for being a human. If any of these things, if learning new skills, creating change, uh, managing fear, um, learning how to, to create the living and life that you want for yourself, if any of that stuff's important, the next hour and 15 minutes is going to rock your world. So I'm going to get out of the way and welcome Seth Godin for, I think it's his third time on the podcast, um, but who's counting? It's just pure gold. Um, so brace yourself and I'm about to bring you Seth Godin. First, just a super quick word from Creative Live, and then we're into the show with Seth. 
Hey, y'all, hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close. And it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it. That's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Life. Now, let's get back to the show. Seth, thank you so much for showing up. Great to have you on the show, my friend. Well, I am definitely in your neighborhood with this project, and I have been thinking of you a lot. I hope that you're doing okay. Um, Well, everyone who is listening to this show, if you, uh, for some reason, missed the Creative Calling book launch, week, which I don't think many folks on this podcast missed it. But uh, in case you're new here since September, um, s- the last time Seth and I were together was in a room in New York City when he was kind enough to show up at the book, uh, my creative calling release. And we had an amazing conversation that went longer than we anticipated. Uh, and to a, a sold out show in uh, what was the name of that theater? Cool little theater. The fabulous, the fabulous Helen Mills. The, the Helen Mills Theater in uh, in Manhattan uh, connection that you uh, introduced me to the Helen Mills Theater folks. Uh, I think so fondly of that and that evening. Um, and uh, I'm going to thank you very publicly here for contributing as so much as you did to um, you gave probably the, the first and earliest uh, and probably the deepest set of feedback that I got from anyone who read that book in advance. And it had a material impact on on the book. And I want to say thank you, first of all. Well, and, part of part of the lesson that both of us know is I got more out of giving you that feedback than you did, and I have been carrying it with me ever since. So the thanks come from me. Well, I couldn't uh, just to confess, you know, here looking at your next project, your new book called The Practice, uh, and I am. It is such. It it brings this fire up inside of me because it seems not only, you know, relevant and it is just a beautiful Venn diagram between what the people who are, um, I think already in this audience and the times right now in the middle of a pandemic, when, you know, people are reassessing priorities and this idea that you have a voice, I, I look at your project and I, I am wickedly inspired. So I'm hoping you can start off our conversation uh, with a little bit of what made you write this book. I'm always fascinated by the motivation and inspiration behind uh, anyone's new project, but especially when you've got so many things going on and to be able to put all your, marshal all your resources into one thing means it's very important, a very good reason for writing it. So let's start there. Why did you write this book? Well, the subtitle is called Shipping Creative Work. And I am super lucky that I spend most of my time engaging with people who realize that what they do for a living is ship creative work. Shipping, because if you don't ship it, it doesn't count. Work, because it doesn't come easy. And creative, because it's something that might not work. And some of the people who are listening to this 
think that they are creatives, but they're not. They're simply doing a job over and over again under the guise of touching something that used to be a creative outlet, but they're cogs in the system. That's a choice. It doesn't have to be that way. And the reason we don't always make the choice gets to the original title for the book, which my great editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, persuaded me to change, but I still have the eight hats I made. And the, <laughs> the original title of the book is Trust Yourself. And when we think about trust yourself, particularly in this moment of so much economic and social dislocation, long overdue focus on racial injustice, people dealing with illness, uh, all these disruptions, when all of that's going on, we are being challenged to decide what's important, and we are being challenged to decide who we can help and where possibility lies. And the loudest voice in our head that's causing us to hold back is the voice that says, it's not our turn. I'm an imposter. I don't know enough. It won't work. I'm not supposed to do this. All of those things. So here's the question that I begin with as I started down this path. When you are talking to yourself, who is talking and who is listening? Because we're really clear, everyone I've ever met, that there are two. There's the talker and the listener, but there's only you. So I want to argue that we have an industrial brain that's about compliance and conformance and fill in the blanks and color by number. And then we have the other brain that's not very good at language. And that brain has some instincts and it wants us to make things better. And if we could learn to trust that part of ourselves to commit to a practice, I think it unlocks a whole bunch of opportunity. Why? I God, It's just such a beautiful framing of a problem that has plagued so many and again, so timely. But it makes me want to ask a slightly different question. It's like this idea of trusting ourselves. When did we forget? When did we stop trusting ourselves? Because as a little toddler, right, we realize that we're standing on our own two legs, that when we move our right foot, that it goes you know, forward. Or we learn that if we articulate our point, that's the best way to, you know, change the world around us. So when do we, you know, I guess maybe when we first trust ourselves and then when do we lose it? And clearly this is about reclaiming it. So if we're reclaiming it, we must mean we lost it at some place. Where do we lose it and why? I don't think uh, most species evolve to have uh, game-changing innovators among their adults. That uh, there's a difference between a puppy and a dog, right? And mm -hmm. if you watch a four-year-old who's never been in a swimming pool hesitate to jump in the water, that fear is there for a really good reason. Because if we didn't have that fear, we wouldn't make it to five. That as soon as we start becoming a sentient being, there's a trigger of self-preservation. But, and there's a huge but, then we built 12 to 16 to 20 years of schooling to amplify that. That what we did was we built a system on purpose, organized by the factory capitalist mindset to get people to do what they're told. Because it's a way more productive path to hiring people if you have people who want to do what they're told. We're not, you know, if you've ever spent any time with a four-year-old, they're not organized around doing what they're told. They do what they want. And so we all went through school so we would do what we were told. And that makes sense until the institutions that are telling us what to do are telling us the wrong thing. 
until we lose our job, until we miss opportunity, until the best job, the best work, the best opportunities belong to people who don't do what they're told. And so it's up to people like you and sometimes like me to say to them, wait a minute, you have this inside of you. Let's, re- let's reclaim it. Mm. This, I understand the connection of fear and of like the right kind of fear. As you said, if you're a four-year-old jumping in the pool, you should be scared because that keeps, <laughs> keeps us alive biologically. I want to do a little bit more retrace. You, you, you chalked a lot of it up to school, but part of, uh, as I reflect on my own experience, a lot of this was not school related and it was, I would call it cultural. And our parents, our career counselors, our friends, our peers, our spouses, our partners, there's this, um, it's almost a conditioning to not trust ourselves from, and this is probably, like, I can throw a rock at the school, but it's really hard to throw a rock at someone you love who like they are scared for you. And by extension, we become scared. And I'm wondering, is it just school or am I unique in that experience? Or how would you think about the problem that, that I had trying to, you know, free myself? Whatever, yeah, whatever. of course, you are completely right. I mean, school is a six-letter shortcut for the cultural standard. That I think if you grew up in Sparta, you probably would have been surrounded by people who are encouraging you to be a warrior. And this idea of what it meant to be in Sparta was throughout the culture. Well, in our case, we codified it in school Parents want that sticker on the back of their car because it's built into the status-driven culture that career counselors and people who have jobs in a bureaucracy have it built in because they mean well because the bureaucracy has made a promise and mostly kept it. And so the people, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is all criticism is not the same. And we got to be really clear about this. People who care about you, who say, why don't you just go get a real job? Are evoking that they care about you, not that they understand that deep down you might be better off not getting a real job. You need to ignore that because that's not useful criticism. Useful criticism comes from someone who says, I see who you are and I see where you're going. What if you did it this way instead? Because you might get where you're going even better. And that criticism is gold. And that criticism is hard to find. But when you find it, The only response is, thank you. And it was interesting. Um, You mentioned a piece of software before we went on air, and the person who started the company cajoled his way into a 30-minute virtual coffee with me, and I didn't know him. And he had a new idea for a product. And I was happy to give free advice because he was a friend of a friend. And for 30 minutes, I explained how I saw where he was trying to go. And for 30 minutes, he argued with me as if, me liking the software was the purpose of the call. And, you know, I have a lot of esteem for my awareness of how software gets marketed in the world, but he didn't have to like my suggestions, but he needed to hear them because that's why he set up the meeting. But he was viewing my feedback as a judgment of him. And if you do that, if you assume you are your work, you have a real problem. Because if you are your work, that means you can't change your work without changing you. And it means if your work doesn't resonate with the person you seek to serve, you now have to dislike the person you seek to serve. 
And not liking your customers is a really hard way to make a living. <laughs> I think to put it mildly, right? It'd be in service to something you don't respect or appreciate or admire or connect with. Um, all criticism is not the same is uh, like that is a very important lesson. And that's why I'm saying it again. Uh, I think you were one of the first people that I learned that from in a blog post that you wrote in probably I'm thinking 2007 or eight and maybe a little bit later and right on the heels of that, I can't remember the title of the blog post, but I remember, uh, you know, it was talking about like who, who matters, you know, what voice matters. And it was a little bit about intern. I, I'm going to try and find this blog post of the, how many thousands of blog posts do you have? 10,000? Writing every only, day, for only seven thousand and change. But keep up and keep at it, and maybe I'll hit eight. Who knows? Now, well, I remember that, and very shortly after that, uh, I sat down with a friend, uh, Brene Brown, and she she shared the Roosevelt quote. It's not who counts; it's the the man in the arena quote. And it started. I I recognized that doing the thing that trusting yourself. And that the criticism that we receive, whether it's how we spend our time or what we focus on, or who we run around with, that deciding who you're going to listen to in advance of actually getting that information is so powerful because otherwise you have to evaluate it every time a new piece of criticism comes to you, which is this exhausting list of people, right? It's a never ending. How many people do you know? You know, let's say 500, 5,000. I don't know how many people you know. But if you if you don't have a framework for whether or not you should pay attention to them, then always you're always caught in this sort of this huge cognitive load of does this person matter or not. So I'm wondering, and this is this kind of uh, references the book in like the concepts of choosing yourself. Of leaders are leaders are imposters. There's all these sort of false. Um, false icons that we've got. So I'm wondering if you can give us some guidance on how to set up a plan for who to trust and when, because when I'm talking about writing, who do I trust? I trust Seth Godin. I trust Seth Godin to give me feedback on the book. Now, if I'm going to, you know, I'm stepping up on the uh, ninth tee and it's a 320 yard par four with the wind to the right, I'm not sure I'm going to trust Seth Godin's advice. I don't know if you're a big golfer, but Okay, but give us a framework, Seth. You see what? Okay, so first of all, I think I'm having a flashback of that post. I didn't look it up while you were talking, but I think what I said was, "I'm walking by a playground in New York City on the Upper West." Yes, yes, because I it was traumatic, right? And yeah, four year old or seven year old starts making fun of me as I'm walking by, and what it triggered for me is that when I was seven, that would have been devastating. That a kid on the playground who I didn't know, my age, who said something nasty about me, I, it would take me, I'm still not over it, right? <laughs> but in that moment, I was fine. Because in that moment, as a 50-year-old, I'm like, you know what? You're seven. You were wetting your bed until a week ago. I had no issue with you not liking me. Have at it. I, you, have, you can't lay a glove on me right now, man. I am so over you. And... <laughs> It was this, this great is, this is moment for me because I realized I can do that anytime I want to. And if the feedback isn't helping, I shouldn't open myself to it. So the first thing I did after that was I stopped reading my Amazon reviews 
And I haven't read one Amazon review of my book since then. And the reason is I've never met an author who said I read all my one-star reviews and now I'm better at writing. Because it doesn't make you better at writing. It just says this person didn't, isn't the kind of person who's going to like your book. So as a creative, we are surrounded by people who their opinion doesn't matter. And so you can get stuck. And this is, we see this in rock and roll all the time where some diva crashes and burns because they have trained themselves to ignore everyone. And that's not helpful. So when I'm sitting with someone like Nikki at, at Portfolio, I have to stop myself from ignoring her because I've so trained myself to ignore so many other people. And in that moment, it's not, oh, here's the list of people I don't listen to. In that moment, I'm like, I have a very small list of people I eagerly do listen to. And if someone earns their spot on that list, then, like I said earlier, it's gold. And when it comes to, for example, writing, there are good days for me giving people feedback on writing. But I also know, because I've had it happen to me firsthand, there are plenty of people who have succeeded who are terrible at giving feedback on writing. And the fact that they've succeeded at writing is irrelevant. And this is a story probably never said in public before. Oh, good. Juicy, do you remember? Juicy. Do you remember the book uh, Positioning by Trout and Reese? It's one of the most important. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most important marketing books ever written. Okay, that re- reveals my ignorance. I've been living under a rock. I apologize. What is it called? I'm, I'm, I'm Positioning. Okay. And it was written in the 1970s. It wasn't an original idea, but they definitely owned it in the way they wrote about it. And the short example is Seven Up. Seven Up is the uncola. Well, once you know what cola is, just calling it the uncola positions it in a different spot in your brain. Whereas if 7-Up is light and refreshing, they'd have to fight against all the light. So they said, here's the grid. We're on the other side of the grid. It's that profound. It changes the way you show up. If you're a, a photographer and all your competitors bring in 3,000 pounds of gear and you run and gun with one little thing, that's your position. You don't have to talk about many other things. You're just the opposite of that. So when I wrote Permission Marketing, my agent sent one of the co-authors of that book a galley and asked him to blurb it. And if you get a galley and you're too busy or you don't want to blurb it, you just write back, I'm too busy. He wrote back a five-paragraph note explaining that I was never going to be successful as a writer, that my idea was terrible and I should just go back to what I was doing. And that's not helpful feedback. And he, yet he co-wrote a really important book. So uh, I can teach some people how to juggle, but I'm not that good a juggler. And I'm bad at golf and at teaching golf. So you, you got to pick carefully about what you're looking for. But what I'm trying to get at is if you sit down and say, I'm going to do creative work that will please everyone. And I'm leading with my chin. And the first person who doesn't like it, I'm going back to my hole. You're just hiding. You've got to be super specific because trust yourself doesn't mean whatever's on your mind is going to work. What it means is until you start shipping the work, you don't know what's going to work, but you've got to go through this iterative process of knowing who it's for and what it's for, bringing it to those people and not just listening to what they say, but watching what they do. Because if you bring it to those people and they embrace it, regardless of what they say to you, you're on to something. And that is the... That is the opportunity of shipping creative work. You had one word in there that I want to hang on, which is so critical. In case you missed it, we're going to go back. Process. 
you said the word process. It was the it was buried right in the middle, but I think it was one of the most important words that you just said. And I'm guessing that's one of the reasons you chose the title instead of trust yourself. You chose the concept of practice because practice even even implies that it's a not at rest, right? It's it's an active process. It's changing. It is. Uh, you can wake up one morning and do it well and the next morning and not do it well. This is why things like yoga, this is why meditation is a practice because I don't get linearly better <laughs> with my meditation. If you're anything like me, I, don't, I had a terrible meditation this morning. Why did you choose the concept practice and can you orient that around uh, process for us? Right. So what it means to have a practice is that you do it. You simply do it. You merely do it. You do it without commentary. You do it without drama. And you do it in service of whoever you're seeking to make a difference for. If it doesn't work today, you do it again tomorrow. This is the practice. So very few people have as their practice going out for ice cream. You need to be in the mood to go out for ice cream. You need to want, you don't go out for ice cream every hour. But my blog... (laughs) is a practice. And I would write it even if no one read it. Because I don't have my blog come out tomorrow because I wrote the best possible post. It comes out tomorrow because it's tomorrow. That's the practice. And once you know that there's going to be a blog post coming out tomorrow, your subconscious freaks out and says, well, if you're going to publish something, I might as well come up with something good. Because it realizes that it can't sabotage the practice by coming up with something bad, by pretending to be blocked. There's no such thing as writer's block. There's just sloppy practice. Mm. Keep going on that. No such thing as I know that's a uh, a key piece of the book. What to talk to me about it? So I so I made these on my Glowforge. These are handmade writer's blocks. They're maple one and a half inch cubes, and they have little uh, things on each side. But everyone, they're all different. But everyone says on one side, no such thing as writer's block. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is no one gets plumber's block. Nobody uh, gets checkout at the supermarket block, right? That If your job is to go to the supermarket and be a checkout person, you do it. You don't get blocked. Writer's block actually means I am afraid of bad writing. I don't want to write because I am afraid that the writing I do will be bad. And if you can let go of your fear of bad writing, and are willing to do bad writing, if you do enough bad writing, and you can insert photography, makeup, architecture, whatever it is your craft is, you can do enough bad work, sooner or later, some good work is going to slip through it. Can't help it. And my friend Isaac Asimov, who I worked with on a project a long time ago, published 400 books back when it was hard to publish a book. He did 400. And I said, Isaac, how do you do that? And he took me over to this little rickety typewriter in his apartment. And he said, every morning I sit in front of this typewriter at 6.30 and I type until noon. And then I'm done for the day. And he doesn't have to type a book. He doesn't have to type anything brilliant. He doesn't have to invent the next robot, which he invented. He just has to type. And if he types long enough, a book is going to come out. That's the practice. Simply type. Mm. Right now, there's like, 10,000 brains that are melting. <laughs> that just, it's so, you speak like a laser beam. Um, I, isn't it natural to, to want to type something good? Isn't it like, 
doesn't it make us feel good about ourselves? And isn't that part of what we're doing by writing or putting creative work out into the world? How do we reconcile those things about, you know, our work and our worth and um, just keep, but keep, 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 because there's, there's 10,000 brains right now that are going, oh my God, this is, this is hard for me to grapple with. So give us a little bit of sugar with the medicine, if you will. Well, let's think about your arc as a rider of bicycles, because most people who are physically able can ride a bicycle. You were bad at riding a bike for weeks or months. Like the first time you rode a bike, you definitely fell off. That's a good reason to stop riding a bike. And yet you got back on the bike. You didn't go to bike riding school. You didn't get an A in bike riding. You didn't read the bike riding textbook. You didn't watch bike riding videos. You rode a bike. But now here's the other half of it. All of us may know how to ride a bike, but none of us have won the Tour de France because we didn't ride a bike enough. At some point, we said, this is good enough bike riding. I'm going to go do something else. There's a movie on Netflix. I'm not going to train to be even better at bike riding. Well, the same thing is true with your photography, and the same thing is true with your writing. And Everybody knows how to take a picture with their phone, but there are very few people who can take a picture like Chase. Why? What's the difference? Please do not tell me it's talent. There's no such thing as photography talent. It's skill. And skill is different than talent because talent is something that you were born with and it's immutable. And skill is something you choose to put the effort in to learn. And what I'm arguing in almost every field, if we care enough, we can get better because you already got better proof. It works. But then you stop caring enough to get better still. So what story do we tell ourselves? And the thing is, I've written 7,000 blog posts. Half of them are below average by any measure, right? They're below average in yield per, per word, in traffic, in whatever. Compared to the others, below average. If I knew which 12 blog posts I could have written over this period of time, I would have written just those. But I am always surprised. Always surprised because I'll write a blog post and go ahead ever. And then it becomes one of my best blog posts. So for me, the measure is... Did I maintain my streak? Did I push myself to a place where I felt nervous? Did I do it not to be selfish, but to be generous? And did one person 12 years later remind me of a blog post about walking past the playground on uh, Amsterdam Avenue, right? Because then it was worth it. But what I am not doing, and this is super important, I have never once had a blog post win the, win the internet. I've never had a blog post that everyone looked at and talked about the same day. Great. That's the goal. Because as soon as you try to win at mass, you start doing SEO, you start doing listicles, you start acting like BuzzFeed, and then you disappear because you become a wandering generality and a mediocrity. Instead of saying, I didn't make this for everyone, I made it for you. And there, if you're wrong, at least you can make it for that person tomorrow. At the core of all of this, though, the person who's just listened to you give that sugar medicine combo is saying this. Yes, yeah, Seth, but I'm scared. And if they're not saying it out loud, they're saying it in their head. To what do you respond? <laughs> all I'm, doing, I'm just giving you like 10. I'm going to give you one liner after one line. Own material and just letting you 
you hit it with a hammer. It's amazing. amazing. So, right. So what I'm trying to do in this book, because I have the luxury of doing so, is to tell my version of the truth and not sugarcoat it because plenty of people can help you say there's a muse. Bob Dylan says a ghost writes his songs. He just has to sit by and wait. I think that's all nonsense. And I think that we have evidence that persistent, successful creatives don't actually get touched by the muse. They're actually really hardworking and resilient. People ask me about imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome is felt by a lot of people, regardless of, uh, the way you appear to the outside world. Imposter syndrome is that feeling that you're a fake, that you're a fraud, that you have no right to be doing what you're doing and that soon you will be found out. And they say, how do I get rid of imposter syndrome? And my answer is you can't because you're an imposter. And so am I. Because what it means to be an imposter is you can't be sure. You're announcing this is my new book, my new blog post, my new this, my new this, my new this. And you can't be sure if it's going to work. You can't be sure if it's certified, guaranteed, et cetera. You're acting as if. And so if you want to fight the fear and fight the feeling of being an imposter, you're going to exhaust yourself. The fighting is what's making you stuck. If we stop fighting and say, oh, yeah, I'm an imposter in service of other people. And I'm afraid in service of other people. That's like saying, I'm running the marathon and it's mile 20 and I'm tired. Well, yeah, because you signed up to run the marathon. If you weren't tired, you're not trying hard enough. And so the message of the book is not everyone gets to be a creative. And if you want to have a hobby, I think having a hobby is great. But if you want to be a professional at any level, for money or not for money, for other people, you got to acknowledge the fact that you're afraid and you have to embrace the fact that you're an imposter. Both of those things are true, and both of those things are fine. Talk about leadership, because I think there are a lot of people who pay attention to the show who uh, marshal creators out of their job, and they think of that, I think wisely so, as creative in their own way. But the relationship between creativity and leadership and you know, I, I'm drafting off of what you just said with this Im- imposter. Like w- when we actually can all call ourselves imposters, we're just doing the best we can. And we probably are, you know, our, our, our time is limited. And if we don't show up today, then we certainly weren't, we weren't qualified enough to be here today and someone else showed up. But how does this relate to leadership and, uh, I don't know, tie these things together, the triangle of imposters, leaders, and creativity? Okay, so first I want to say, I don't think we're doing the best we can. I know I'm not doing the best I can. I don't think anybody does the best they can all the time. That if somebody is picking up a car that ran over a little kid and using superhuman strength and gives themselves a hernia and saves the kid's life, I'll grant you that in that 60 seconds, they were doing the best they can. But the rest of us are in a long haul. And in the long haul, we're conserving energy. We're protecting ourselves. We're saving it up for another day. And if you can let yourself off the hook and say, this might not be me at 11, but I can persistently train and contribute at eight, that might be a lot better than hiding out at two because you can't be 11, right? Because we need to be realistic about that. But going back to leadership, leadership is not the same as management. Management is a very specific job that industry needs where you tell other people what to do and get them to do it faster and cheaper than they did it yesterday. 
And management is important, but you don't have to be a manager. And most people listening to this are not. Leadership, on the other hand, is totally optional. And leadership is exploring the unknown voluntarily. Volunteering to lead or volunteering to follow someone who is leading. And if it's not voluntary, then there's no leadership. Then you want to be a manager. And some managers lead, but not all of them. And some leaders manage, but not all of them. So what I'm saying to leaders is it's a creative act. It's a form of art because you don't know if it's going to work. Because if you knew it was going to work, it would be management. No, it's leadership. I'm going over there. I'm not sure how to get there. Who wants to come? And that leadership has to make us feel like an imposter because we just agreed we don't know exactly how to get there. And therefore, who are we to do it? And as a result, in our society, a lot of people say, not for me, someone else. I'll wait for I'll follow them instead. And when we look, you know, I've been on the internet since 1976. I've been doing it professionally since 1980 something. And we believed at the beginning that lots and lots of good, caring people would take advantage of the fact that the gatekeepers were gone and show up with their songs and show up with their leadership and show up with their writing, and it would be a huge net positive. And what we saw are two things that happened in addition to some people showing up that way. One, trolls showed up, people who want to manipulate the system to make things worse. And two, a lot of really capable, good people didn't show up, that most of the people who used Twitter for its first 10 years only followed people. They didn't tweet. More than half the people who used Twitter did not tweet. They were receiving it. And here we have this medium, and you were such a pioneer back at the beginning, and you've consistently done this to say, wait a second, you mean I have a camera and a microphone? Let's go. And too many other people said, who can I follow? And we're now in this moment of 2020 where so many things went sideways. And my argument is the only way to make things better is by making better things. And the only way to make better things is by leading. And you can lead in any way you want, but you got to find a group of people who you can earn their trust and you can point somewhere. And as an imposter who means well, lead. Because that, I think, is the only hope we've got. I think this is a natural segue. Um kick me in the shins if you feel otherwise, but this connection, you've, it, it's, you've already made it three or four times in our conversation, this, uh, this idea of uncertainty and leadership, what you just gave, you said, I'm going over there. I don't know how it's going to be. I'm going to put this on the internet. I don't know how it's going to be received. I'm going to write 7,000 blog posts. If I knew which 50% of them were the right ones to write, I would have only wrote 3,500. But in all of those things is uh, is uncertainty. And in the book, you further than things will be uncertain, you've actually actively said avoid certainty. But aren't we certainty-seeking machines? Isn't that part of like our DNA is like routine and simplicity and risk avoidance? And and so I, I how, how do you counsel someone whose DNA is that we should make as many de certain decisions to make our lives as long as possible? 
So let me begin by saying I only wrote this for 1% of the people in the United States, not by income, but because they are not eager to do what they're told all day, every day. And, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, Dan Ariely did a study in which, uh, you know, of course, college students get studied in uh, cheap psychology experiments more than any other group. So your mileage may vary. But there are these toys. There are these toys called bionicles. They're like Legos, but they're action figures. And he hired a bunch of students, and he said, "All right, I'm going to pay you a dollar a bionicle to sit here and put them together." And after someone ordered, you know, uh, earned ten bucks, he said, "All right, you want to do ten more?" So he could judge what the exhaustion rate was for getting paid a dollar a bionicle. The exact numbers might be off here, but it doesn't matter. Then he did the experiment again. But this time, while they were putting the bionicles together, the experimenter was taking the bionicles they just put together apart in front of them and putting them back in the box. So now we got two jobs. One job where you're actually doing something that feels like a craft and the other job where it is obvious that what you're doing is stupid because as soon as you do it, they take it apart in front of you. And what he found is in the second experiment, really statistically well done, way more people quit early. Because even though it's your job, you're getting paid to do it, this sucks. I don't want this job. I want to do a job where I feel connected, where I feel like I'm doing something that matters. And so if that's only 1% of the people in the world, fine with me. That group of people is saying, you know what? This uncertainty is not just a, a hassle. It's a huge part of the deal. It helps me become a human. So one of my slogans is that reassurance is futile. And it's the most controversial one, I think, in the whole book. Because I know lots of people who would like more reassurance. Everything's going to be okay. And someone like me shows up and says, everything's unlikely to be okay. It's really unlikely that you're going to hit a home run with this. It's really unlikely that every person who sees it's going to love it. It's really unlikely it's going to turn out exactly the way you hoped right? Because here's the problem with reassurance. There's never enough. As soon, you know, Oprah just called how much she loves the last thing you did. She hangs up and like five minutes later, you're saying, what about Brene? Brene didn't like it. She didn't call me. And then you need Brene to call. It never ends, right? (laughs) And if we can just acknowledge that whatever happens is okay, just another data point on the journey of shipping creative work, then we can get back to the practice. I did that. It didn't work. My first year as a book packager, I got 800 rejection letters in a row. I was going to have to quit. I was window shopping at restaurants and eating macaroni and cheese for dinner. I was failing and fail. Every time I opened the mailbox, that's two, three, four letters a day with a stamp that someone had written to me saying, we don't like you every single day, right? And the only way I got through it was by saying, That's a no for now. That's another data point. This isn't about they don't like me. They don't like that thing I just tried. And for free, for the cost of two stamps, I found out they don't like that thing I just tried. What a gift. Now what? And that is where the practice lives. That's how you develop the practice is don't look for reassurance. Look for signposts that let you know which way to turn next. If for some reason you just fast forwarded to this part of our conversation, uh, I'm obviously sitting here with Seth Godin talking about his new book, The Practice. 
And what is this, this felt to me, this, you know, when you first shared that you were doing a new book with me some time ago and through the course of this conversation, like, uh, this like a super pellet, it's like a pill of all of the best stuff from, because there's some of this is marketing. Some of this is mindset. Some of this is, is creativity. Some of it's heart and soul and passion and trust. And like it, if you are a creator and you have not yet bought this book, well, a do Seth solid and uh, pre-order it because pre-order is really, really mad authors having just come out of this and been coached by Seth and some of our mutual friends that this is just, a, it's essential reading. I'll leave it at that essential reading. Now it's important for me to try and, uh, find a hole in your armor as your friend. And so how, how, but how, how do we reconcile, for example, another theme of the book is, uh, it's probably too, too, too strong a word. It's another, uh, topic of the book is being paranoid about mediocrity. So how can we simultaneously put work out and not, you know, be the man or woman in the arena, the he, she, or they just throw it at us. Let's go. I'm willing. It's a process. It is a, um, I'm, it's a habit. It's a practice. It's all these things. And yet back in, in not necessarily the, and maybe it's the reptile part of our brain, we also are judging. We need to have taste. We need to be able to sniff out mediocrity. You know, it, it, how, how can you reconcile this stuff for me? Such a juicy, such a juicy question. Exactly what I was expecting from Chase. Thank you. <laughs> First, let's talk about what is good taste. Because I started talking about this in the creators workshop that we run, and I, re I did a lot of research on the definition, no one had a good one. Good taste is predicting in advance what your customers are going to like. That's good taste. So if you show up at a party and you are dressed in a way that people admire, you have good taste. If you were worn those clothes to a different party, you'd look like an outlier. But here you have good taste. You predicted in advance what the people you serve want. We develop good taste through practice. We develop it by seeing and noticing and learning to understand what fits together and what doesn't. Right next to that is the idea that perfectionism is different than perfect. Perfectionism is the idea of holding back because you don't want to ship and using as an excuse a defect that no one else could see. That is different than saying, is it good enough? Because the words good enough mean what they say. It is good enough. It doesn't have to be better because if it needed to be better, then it wouldn't be good enough. And so the rules are, number one, we don't ship junk. If you believe it's junk, you don't ship it. Number two, develop better taste, meaning figure out what's junk more accurately before you ship it. The way to develop good taste is by putting things into the world and seeing what resonates and what doesn't. And then we get to the Nike problem which is the ridiculous slogan, just do it. Because just do it can be read as what the hell, ship junk, just, just do it. 
The answer is actually merely do it, which would not have sold any sneakers, but it's correct. Merely do it without commentary. Merely do it without drama because you can, because it's important. And so what I'm arguing is you have a reputation. Don't wreck it. You do not need to ship your work to everyone to find out it's no good. You can ship it to a few people. Don't make promises you can't keep. If you're a surgeon, don't do an experimental surgery on someone and say, yeah, I just did it. No, not okay. Because you made a promise to that person you would do the best surgery, not something you just thought up on your way to the operating room. And so when we think about people, you know, if I, if I make a list of, you know, people like you, people like Jill Greenberg, people um, like Annie Leibovitz, people who have developed a look and a feel to their photography, just to pick an example. Their work, when it first appeared, was daring, offended a lot of people, and was distinctive. And it was over time that A, you all changed the culture, and B, your taste got ever better. But none of it would have happened if any of you had been perfectionists, right? So for those of you who haven't seen Joe Greenberg's work, once you see it, you say, oh, I I recognize this. The very first photo that Jill Greenberg ever took was of me in 1976 when she was, I think, 14 or something like that. And that picture pretty much sucks. Even if though I'm in it, it's not a good picture. But if she hadn't taken that picture, she wouldn't have taken the picture after that one. And then the one after that one and on and on and on. And so you got to start and then you got to say, not, I made it inside the boundary. I am done exploring because now you're back to shipping mediocrity. You got to say, I found the boundary and now I'm going to go outside the boundary because it's there that the juice lies. Mm. It's there that the juice lies. That's a That was a very good answer because I, to me, that's like... I can understand now the concept of merely ship it and over time what you ship be, can be refined and is refined by your taste, by your skill level. Your skill level only increases through practice and through shipping. And this is it becomes a virtuous cycle rather than a be paranoid about sucking and then just shipping work. It, this is a it's almost a uh, yeah, a virtuous cycle. It, 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 the, it seems like at the base of all this stuff, it comes back to trusting yourself though. Cause if you're, if you're worried about your, you know, your trust or your skills or your, you know, and is, is developing trust a process? Is that a practice as well? Yeah. And you already figured out the answer. I mean, the people in your life that you trust, who you do not, uh, who are not your parents, Everyone else in your life you trust, you trust because you trusted them a little and they didn't let you down. And then you trusted them a little bit more and they didn't let you down. And that's how you learn to trust yourself is you discover. And, you know, Julia Cameron's morning pages, which I mentioned in the book, uh, are really useful when they're used the way they're supposed to be used. It's not here's where you practice your real writing. It's just dump everything that's in your head this morning as soon as you wake up and then do it again tomorrow. By writing down your inanities, by writing down all the dead ends, you learn to trust yourself. 
because you discover that rather than having to keep it off the page because it's so humiliating, it's not that bad, right? You're not going to show it to anybody else, but like, that's the worst I got? Okay, I can build from this. And realizing it's not fatal is so important because the four-year-old jumping in the pool, that could be fatal. This work, not fatal. Mistakes are fixable. Problems are solvable. The reason that problems are solvable is that's why we call them problems. If they're not solvable, then they're situations, then they're laws of physics. So find a problem and start a cycle of solving it, and then you will trust yourself a little bit more, and you get to do it again. And repeat. So much of this stuff, the simple answer, what, what you don't know about our recording is I, I had my Skype was not working, and I had to restart and this idea of restarting, of just repeating, of just like, okay, I'm going to do it again. And it worked the second time. So again, this is this connection between process and practice and repetition. And I want to go all the way back to the beginning and why this work is so timely is because what I have heard over and over in talking to friends and peers and mentors and students and uh, about this crazy time that we're in is it's just made me understand in sometimes subtle and sometimes very profound ways what is meaningful to me, how we spend our time, what we're doing with whom. And, you know, part of maybe the lesson that we need to learn is we needed to have a lot of these decisions stripped away. But this concept of finding your voice is so like, and, and if you haven't found it yet, this is this should be your mission. Can you just like can you riff on finding your voice to me? Because I do I do think that this is I mean tribes linchpin those, those are all ahead of their time in their own way. This to me because of the launching it in a pandemic when people are trying to it's meaningful for them when they realize that creativity is such a huge force and that they can make some choices. They can see the world as it is. They can make change, learn new things, manage their fear. Talk to me about the voice again. I, it, this is something that I just, the more we talk, finding your voice. You can be parodied. Then you are peculiar. Peculiar has a very specific meaning. It means private property. It means yours. And if you sound like something when you are on the screen, on the canvas, or on the page, that can be your voice. And I know when someone sends me a blog post I wrote 15 years ago that I don't remember writing, I can tell if I wrote it because it sounds like me. You can change that over time. You can go from being a playwright to a political activist. And you can find a different voice, but you can make it your voice when you decide you care enough about trusting that voice to share it with other people consistently and generously and persistently so that it stands for something, so that it stands for you. That idiosyncrasy is essential because everyone else is taken. The only person who's left is you. There isn't just one version of you. If I had been born in the Ukraine, I wouldn't be talking to you right now and I wouldn't be talking in English. This is not dictated by my DNA. This is dictated by 
Where did you grow up? What did you think was important? What have you been rewarded for? What have you been punished for? What do you think is worth doing next? And we add that all up. And when we feel like we found our footing and we had a day well spent, it's because we found our voice. Because we spoke up for someone who was facing injustice. Because we reached out to somebody who needed us. Because we put something into the world that made someone cry. Whatever it is you choose, when you do that and are in sync, we can announce you have found your voice. And when you feel like you are losing your voice, which has happened to me, which has happened to others, don't act like it got put on you by an external force. Because external forces happened, but then we make choices. And what we have is the choice to realize there are still people who are counting on us. And it doesn't have to be a million people. It can be two. Two people waiting for us to show up as us, as only we can unsubstitutable. And that option is such a privilege to be the kind of person who is trusted enough that people are hoping you will show up with your voice. You said it was a choice. And I think this is a very, very important uh, thing I want to underscore because this has always been present in your writing. If And for those that do not have the distinct privilege of like hanging out with Seth and getting a meal or a drink or like, you just feel this, like this is just so in, like indelibly you at the base of all this stuff is mindset. You said that was a choice just a second ago. You've also said that passions are choices. Like you choose to be passionate about something that the attitude that you walk in any room with, is a choice and it's a choice you can develop. You can get better at walking in with a better attitude. How help us understand the role that mindset plays in all that. I'm a huge mindset freak and I, I put it at the base of my creative pyramid. If you don't start from a good foundation and to me, this is mindset, then at some point, you know, it's going to be hard for you to show up because life gets hard and there's a million things, external forces that you just talked about. But the the best defense that I've I am aware of, and what is so pervasive in your writing, and when you spend ten minutes with you, is your, your mindset and how you decide to show. talk to me about mindset. Okay, so to be clear, uh, I've had privilege my whole life, and so many lucky breaks, and lots of people have been misjudged and hurt and grew up in families that weren't as supportive as mine and didn't have resources. But there are also people in the world who grew up with way more than I grew up with. All of those humans, maybe you're dealing with a disability, maybe you're trying to overcome poverty, maybe you've been sick. All of those people had something happen in their life. That happened. The question is, now what should we do? Does that mean you have as many choices as everybody else? No. Everyone has a different set of choices. Okay, that happened. Now what should we do? And there are only two paths. One path is to say, I have no choices. I have to do what I'm doing. That feels really empty to me. It feels like that's not going to get you the life you want, nor is it going to get you the day you want. And the alternative is to say, my choices are limited. Everyone's are. But given the choices I've got and the mindset I could adopt today, which one do I want? Because I'm entitled to whine about X, Y, or Z. Will it help? 
right? I'm entitled to be nervous or anxious about X, Y, or Z. Will it help? I'm entitled to be depressed and sad about X, Y, or Z. Will it help? Because if it won't help, don't choose to do it. And the world will keep dumping stuff on us. The media will keep dumping stuff on us. Everything around us. That happened. Now what should we do? And what I have found is that the most useful path is to say, now I can make a choice. What a privilege to be able to make a choice. And, you know, I've worked with, um, the, with my friend Kat, and she's worked in Pelican Bay and high security prisons. That's the biggest place where healing starts. Okay, that happened. Now what do I do? There's still a choice. Even after things have been stripped away, even after unlucky breaks, even after tragedy, there's still a choice. And the flip side is also true. After I joined Yahoo a long time ago, I worked with a whole bunch of people who had unlimited options. They were in the equivalent of Florence during the Renaissance. They had as many resources as they wanted. They could walk into any place and raise money. They could hire anybody. They could build anything. And most of them just faded away because they didn't want to make the choice. And it's the same deal on the up, on the down, on the sideways. If you choose to make a choice, you get to own what happens next. And that feels to me like an opportunity, an obligation, and it's thrilling too. Two final topics before we wrap up. One, okay. I, um, the concept of shipping is it's literally on the of the book, right? <laughs> shipping creative work. Why don't we just get credit for doing creative work in our parents' basement? Yeah, that, that's a hobby. I love a, hobbies. I love them. Okay. I, have, I, I can carve a canoe paddle in a way, at, by hand out of a piece of cherry wood that makes me very happy. And I will not sell it to you. Because the minute I sell you a canoe paddle, I have elevated my hobby to a profession. And they're separate. So, you know, Hilma off Klimt, who had that big show at the Guggenheim, I think you and I may have seen each other mm -hmm. right around that time. I'm controversial in thinking that she sort of blew it because she painted 10,000 really important paintings. No one ever saw them. And she wouldn't let her nephew show them to the public until 20 years after she was dead. Like what would have happened if it was one year after she was dead? I'm not sure. 20 years after she was dead because she had a hobby. And so the art ends up being important, but the art isn't brave. And her taste didn't develop. And her taste didn't develop because she didn't ship the work. And I could only imagine how the world would be different today if everyone from Duchamp to Victor Vassarelli had seen her work as she was making it and how her work would have changed if she could have seen how people saw what she made. So yeah, go have a hobby. I will not dismiss that at all, but it's also not going to make the world better until you ship the work. Is it all about making the world better? Or is there any medicine? Or is that still then qualify under good for you? Uh, put oxygen mask on before other people, but it's not professional. And that's the distinction. I, you know, I wrote something the other day that I was surprised to write, which is, um, and this is why we share the planet with you. And we don't usually think about it that way, that we have this party going on for billions of people and we're sharing the punch 
and we're sharing the carbon and we're sharing the air. And I think it's really important that we're looking out for everyone except number one, because we're sharing the planet. And so if you're not here to make things better, why exactly are you here? Because I'm not sure anyone has the right to just take whatever they can get away with. I think what we do is have the right to choose to make things better. Mm -hmm. You just have this way of putting a bow on it. You, <laughs> you speak like finished written prose. prose. I'm sorry. I'm it's, ranting. It's, I, when I see you, no, I feel it's so, beautiful. It's beautiful. Like I wish I feel I safe and encouraged. So I move into rant mode. I'm sorry. No, I mean, this is why people around the world are going crazy right now as they listen to this in the best way, why they're motivated and inspired. And you can clearly tell that you are a writer because you speak in these profound narrative arcs with a very strong period at the end of it. And then you set your pencil down. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> All right. Last topic, Seth. Um, I'm not going to let you off with a one sentence, tight, precise little answer here. And it's the concept of joy that pervades through the book. This like, this just, there's like a levity. And, and again, this is the, the, another thing that is so great about spending time with you and that you see in your writing or here in you know, the videos that you've made is just, there's just a joy, a playfulness. And you're all, you're very clear in this book about this is, it's your job to seek it because it's not necessarily going to smash you on the head or there's an awareness maybe component to it, but what role does that play in maybe in your life and, and how would you prescribe it to uh, anyone who's listening or watching? So I recently did a podcast about GPT-3, which is uh, an artificial intelligence install that's going to change the world or the things that come after and if you are engaging in a back and forth or reading some writing that this AI has done, you can't tell that a person didn't write it. And like I've been studying AI since 1976. So I'm pretty good at telling. It was very hard to tell. And the argument I made in the podcast is maybe it doesn't matter. That if you are reading something or being amused by something or watching something, and it turns out it was made by a machine, not a person, maybe it doesn't matter because you got the benefit of it. And the authenticity and the pain and the turmoil of the creator is secondary to what did it do for you? And I got to tell you, there are definitely days when I am not filled with joy and optimism. But every time I fake it, I feel better. I do better work and I have a better day. So if you can't tell the difference between a day when I'm really filled with joy and optimism and one when I'm not, then I'm probably doing my professional work. And the same thing is true if you have a lawyer or a surgeon or a veterinarian or anybody else. If you go to see a concert back when in the future when there's concerts, you don't want the musician to come on and talk about what a lousy day they have and not play very well. You want them to come on and give the best show they ever did. And I guarantee you that when a musician comes on and does the best show they ever did after a lousy day, their day just got better. And so don't put me down for the authenticity camp. Put me down for the camp of people 
who care enough about their work to show up. There's something also so about the like presence. You have to be present in order to really feel that joy. And that's what I've, I, I loved. And it does, I just, I think about that when I read your writing that it feels so present. As you said, you get up, this is part of the practice, right? We're a full circle here. You get up and I'm writing because it's tomorrow, not because this is my best work. And there's some, again, triangle that is this joy, presence, doing like fulfillment. Is this me reading into your work something that wasn't intended? Or is this part of what a, what a creative practice gives us? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I've talked to some really extraordinary creators and the ones who are in the most turmoil are the ones who don't want to own their creative magic. They're the ones who are sure that if they look it in the eye, it will disappear. They're the ones who are obsessed about this agent or that editor or that gatekeeper that didn't get that thing. They're the ones who are bitter because they, their gift doesn't feel like it will continue to be present. And as I was working my way through writing this book, which was you know 15 years in the making and several weeks in the writing, was what do they have in common or different from the people who are joyful professionals, who just keep showing up so glad that they get to work indoors, make a difference for other people, and even get paid for it. And it keeps coming down to where's the source? And if the source is unknown, unnamed, and somehow involves building a shrine and you know taking mushrooms, then you're always going to feel like a double fraud because it's not even your work. And the alternative is to say, no, this is as much work as digging a hole. I Give me a shovel and let's go. And it seems to me that that story we get to tell ourselves is the most productive way I know to do this work. I'm going to read three quotes to you that you said about joy. The most successful givers aren't doing it because they're being told to. They do it because it is fun. It gives them joy. This is, this is what I want people to think about. Like this thing that you do, of course it, it, it has all of the properties that are at least some of the properties that bring you joy. But this idea of shipping it, of putting it out there in the world, of creating more joy, that's part of the thing that we're doing. Even if you create a, a dark piece or a melancholic piece, people who read or watch or connect with that art, it ultimately can bring them joy to know that they're not alone in their suffering or that they're connected with other people on the planet. That's just like the part of, again, this, this book really does feel like the culmination of like the 17 books that you've, you've written. I'm going to give you two more joy quotes. The joy of art is particularly sweet though, because it carries with it thread of fear of missed connections. It's the precisely the high wire act of quote, this might not work 
that makes original art worth doing. And then the last one, and then I'm going to ask for your comments, your final comments about joy here. Corporations, particularly large-scale service and manufacturing businesses, are organized for efficiency or consistency, but they're not organized for joy. Joy comes from surprise and connection and humanity and transparency and the new. It's Am, am I reading into this again, or is joy something that you're seeking personally and this is you're pouring it on the page to create more of it more connection more awareness or is this joy is this joy a foreground thing is it are you actively cooking on this or is it simmering in the background for seth godin i really like to solve interesting problems and the problems i like to solve are almost always about helping someone get to where they've always wanted to go and maybe they didn't even realize that's where they wanted to go. And when I see that happen in the workshops I'm running, I get to see it up close or later after someone's read something I wrote. That is what I do. And that is what I remember. And that is what I want to do again tomorrow. I remember the first time it happened when I was 17 years old and I want to have it happen again, to be able to unlock potential for people to get to where they wanted to go so they can feel that joy of also solving an interesting problem for someone else. Because people don't like to be alone. We've learned that the hard way in the last nine months. People want to be connected. Connection is at the heart of who we are. But connection creates problems and cre connection creates opportunities. And art, art, real art, is simply connection. How did I make something? that helped the connection happen. And so I think I'm hardwired for that part, but I might be seeing it a little different than some other people. And I'll just add one more thought about joy, which is uh, back when I was getting on planes, I gave the keynote speech at the National Funeral Directors Association. And I gotta tell you, the top 10% of the people in that industry get joy out of funerals because they didn't make someone die. That person was gonna die anyway but they got a chance to put on a service, to put on an interaction that gave that family solace and memories and possibility. And can you imagine being a funeral director who didn't get joy out of it and you're going to do it every day for 50 years just for the money? Please give me the other guys instead. I'd much rather work with them. Thank you so much for your time, Seth. And for anyone who, uh, if you if you've missed it all, this is largely, I think, the culmination. I think Seth's best, work. Uh, and it it is in his new book. It's a tidy little package that's easy to pick up. <laughs> all you have to do is press a button on the internet. It's called Practice Shipping Creative Work. Um, I'm not quite sure when we're going to be able to drop this. I think we're going to try and time it. Uh, in a sophisticated and timely way with the launch on November 3rd. So whenever you're listening to this, I would encourage you to go pick up a copy. It's truly extraordinary. Um, helping us create people identify as creators or entrepreneurs, risk takers, or want to be more of any of those things to help you find a voice to do your best work and um, to realize that uh, everything is there for us if we apply ourselves and if we take appropriate action. Seth, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm 
I long for our, us to be able to be in the same room again soon. And I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, you're such a match. Thank you, Chase. It was really a privilege. Really, truly. Keep making a ruckus. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you. So much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, want to say thanks i'm just at chase jarvis you can use at creative live as well and the guests are easy to track down because they are well they're usually quite well-known people um but again thank you so much for listening i'm looking forward to being in your ears again hopefully tomorrow